We are continuing our series in First and Second Samuel. And so if you have a Bible, let's open it up to Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to be uh, covering a particular episode in the life of David, which is very familiar to many of you, if not most of you. And uh, I'm going to do my best to make sure that we understand not only the episode of uh, the text of chapter 11 and 12, but also how it points us to the person of Christ. One of the things that I love about the Bible is I love that the Bible is so rich in what it teaches. It's so, it, it contains a variety of different things. There's not only uh, promises and not only things of, um, that inspire us and give us hope, but there's also stern warnings and so it kind of has both, and I think both is uh, something that God has given to us as a gift. And so today what we're actually going to see is, is both sides of that, or a part of today's message will involve warning, but there's another side of it that will involve hope. And remember, the gospel is always two-pronged, first bad news, then good news. And so we're going to do that today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to just bless our time together. Father, would you... As we gather in this place, be pleased to meet with us. God, we know that we as your church are your sons and daughters. And when we gather in this place, we know, as we talked about last week, that you are here among us. So God, as you preside over our gathering, I pray that you would do for us and in us whatever it is you will. God, make our hearts such that we yield to what we hear. God, help our minds to be able to comprehend and think through the implications of your word. Help our, the imaginations that you've given us as a gift. Help us to see the truth and the beauty and the wonder of who you are. So God, meet with us, I pray, today. Be pleased to do in us whatever it is that you know we need. Confront us, convict us, challenge us. But raise us up, comfort us, and grant us hope. So, God, would you do these things for us, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, the Bible contains several severe warnings. And one particular warning that re reoccurs throughout Scripture is the warning that we ought to be very careful how we live our lives and the way in which we live our lives in times in which our lives are comfortable, in times when life seems good, and also in times where life is just humming along nicely. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 19, we have one of the warnings that God has given to us, which I think is important. Because I don't think David would have got into the trouble that he is in in chapters 11 and 12 had he heeded the warning that is here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So I'm going to read this for us, and you'll see what I'm talking about. God says, take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and my might have uh, the might of my hand have given me this wealth, you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. If you forget the Lord your God, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That warning 
should have served as kind of a, a buffer or something to prevent David from doing what he's about to do in chapter 11. But he forgot his God. He forgot the commandments of the Lord. He neglected to do due diligence and being obedient to God's word. At this point, King David has moved to Jerusalem. He's defeated his enemies. God has given him great victory. In addition, David has built a house of cedar for himself. So he has armies. He has riches. He has wealth beyond measure. He's healthy. He's presiding over and ruling over a growing kingdom. And all of this is fertile ground for pride to grow and eventually to cause one to forget God. And so that's a warning. If you forget God, you shall surely perish in your pride. So although the Bible has many stern warnings, we would do well not to ignore those. The Bible also contains a lot of promises of which we should not neglect. And that's what makes this section in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 it's very famous, but that's what makes it so special to us is that it has a severe warning, but it also has soaring promises of hope. So we start in verse 1, chapter 11. Remember at this time the trajectory of David's life is trending, trending towards power, influence, and success. He's victorious in battle. He's presiding over a, a fortified city which would one day be named after him, the city of David. And then we read this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now this verse is really important. David has sent the army to besiege the city of Rabbah of the Ammonites. It happens in the season of spring, which is the, tip, the time typically where kings re-engage their enemies and send their armies out, and the kings themselves will lead their armies out into procession. However, David doesn't go with the army. He doesn't go with Joab. He entrusts Joab with the responsibility of taking care of the army. Meanwhile, David stays back in Jerusalem, which means he's not doing much. In his devotional book, For the Love of God, D.A. Carson writes this. One of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. I know this is true in my own life. If I'm not diligently pursuing the things of God, I can find myself idle and I can find myself drifting towards sin. One easy example is I had two or three days being able to hang out around Thanksgiving. There's football to watch. Somebody's got to watch it. <laughs> so I figured I'm, I'm up to the task. But I also find myself in the midst of that being irritable. My idleness is leading to selfishness. The idleness also leads to laziness. You see, sitting around doing not much of anything and being idle, you don't drift into holiness when you're like that. You drift into unholiness. 
And so just reading this one verse where we see that David is idle, David remains in Jerusalem. He's not engaged with the activities that are required of him as the king. We naturally then conclude whatever comes after this is probably not good. It's probably evidence of his downward drift into sin. So let's read it together. Verse 2. It happened... Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Let's stop there and just realize David has just had a siesta. He's just had an afternoon nap. He's arisen from his couch. And then this happens. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. I have known people who have taught this section of Scripture, and they've called it David's adultery. And you can see it perhaps in your heading in your Bible. It's called David's adultery with Bathsheba. And as people teach it, they often say Bathsheba is partly to blame. I mean, after all, what's her deal? Why is she bathing where she can be seen? But the reality is this. You have to, you have, to have an imagination to understand what's going on. David has built himself a cedar house of which it could be anywhere from 25 feet high to 50 feet high. And it's in the center of the city. And Jerusalem's on a hill and it overlooks the rest of the city. So as he's walking around on the roof, he's looking over his city and he's peers through a window, we presume. And there is a woman who is obeying the law and is bathing herself because she's just finished with her period. And so she's obeying the law of Moses. And David is up on the roof, wandering around, idle, and he sees her. And then it all happens. David could have moved on with his day, but he doesn't. Instead, he sets into motion a series of events events that will not only impact his day and his life, but will impact the lives of countless people in the future. David inquires of the woman finds out that she is married to one of his trusted soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, who's one of the 30 mighty men of David. David goes on to send messengers to Bathsheba to take her for himself. Now I want us to stop and pause for a moment and think about this. If you're living in a time in which there's a king and messengers sent from a king come knocking on your door and they tell you that the king wants to see you right now, How free in that moment do you feel to say, no, I'm not going with you. Part of the reason why we can chuckle at that experience is because when the king summons you, you go for you know to reject or resist the king may cost you your life. So there is Bathsheba obeying the word of the Lord, doing what she needs to do, and knocking on her door are messengers from the king commanding her, compelling her forcefully more than likely, to come to the king's palace. This may not be a good thing. To be disobedient would mean potentially to die. So... Here's one of the things I want us to think about. 
The king in this moment is exploiting his authority and power. He is doing to Bathsheba whatever he wants. Not only that, but here's this woman minding her own business who's obeying the law of God and doing what she needs to do. And I tell you what, when you're walking around on a roof and you're looking around and you see a woman bathing, that is called voyeurism, which is sin. And then on top of that, you find out who she is and then you find out she's a married woman and you send messengers to retrieve her anyway. And not only that, but you compel her to come and then you sleep with her and get her pregnant. Brothers and sisters, that is not simple adultery. A better word for that might be something like rape or sexual assault. Do you see the severity of the situation? This is not consensual, casual, oops. This is bad. And if you notice what David does, he sees and he takes which reminds us of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 where we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do? She took of its fruit and she ate. She gave some to her husband. That's the pattern of sin. You see something good. You see something delightful. You see something you want. And you just take it. Now, why do we spend time talking about this stuff? Why should we spend time talking about sin and talking about temptation and talking about the patterns of sin? And I think the reason is this. God in his grace as a gift to us has given us these stories so that we would pay attention to them and not fall by the same kind of sin that they to. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now these things happened to them, meaning the Old Testament, as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So God makes sure that these stories are recorded for our instruction in Scripture. So if you think that you're strong enough to manage your own life and, and kind of maneuver your way and, and kind of make your own decisions apart from God's instruction, like you got it, you're self-sufficient, you can do it, you have to realize God's good gift to us is these stories, which are warnings, don't be like this. And we can't ignore them. If we will read the Adam and Eve story, if we will read the story of David and Bathsheba, we are warned. Should you find yourself in this kind of situation, don't be like them. Which is different than how most of us read the Bible. Most of we read the Old Testament, they're like, oh, I want to be like David. I just want to be like whoever. You sure? You sure you want to be like them? You want to set the bar that low? We should never be cavalier with our temptations. We should never think that these temptations are mere obstacles. We can overcome them because if we allow these temptations to go unchecked, it will wreak havoc in your life. The Apostle James writes this in James 1 verse 13. Let no one who says when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is a destruction, destructive sequence of events. But if you notice, desire itself is not the issue. The fruit in the garden that, that Eve saw and wanted, that fruit in and of itself is not wrong or evil. It's delightful to the eyes. It's good for food. Likewise, Bathsheba, she in and of herself is not wicked merely because she's a woman. Nor is she evil or wicked because she's a beautiful woman. Nor is she evil or wicked because she's obeying the law of God. God calls men and women both very good. More than that, God says it's good for a man to be attracted to a woman and a woman to be attracted to a man. That's how God made it. So the issue is not desire. Because the desire for sex is God-given. The desire for food is God-given. But what is not permitted is to seek those, the satisfaction of those desires in ways that God has not permitted that's where it all goes south. The fruit was off limits, and so was Bathsheba. However, that does not mean that the fruit itself was evil or that Bathsheba was evil. It means that seeing the goodness of the fruit and seeing the goodness of Bathsheba, though they are off limits, you take them anyway. That is sin. Because it's basically thinking to yourself, I have this desire, and then never asking the next question, ought I to act on this desire? And if so, what are my boundaries? For if we try to be satisfied beyond the boundaries that God has permitted, then we are in rebellion against God, and the consequences for that rebellion is death. So how do we confront temptation? If we, we shouldn't be cavalier with this. So how should we confront it? How we sh should we engage with it? And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 again. He goes on and he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, every temptation you've ever experienced is something somebody else has experienced as well. You are not so unique. Your experience is not so one of a kind that nobody understands what you're going through. Hence, God has given us a Christian community so that we can encourage one another and be fortified by one another in battling temptation. Don't you think that your temptation is unique to you only? And then it goes on and says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And I love the next verse. But with temptation, but with temptation... God will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Did you see what Paul wrote? Paul wrote that there will be temptation, but along with the temptation, it's not temptation alone, but what God supplies you according to his grace is with the temptation is escape. God gives you escape. He doesn't eradicate your temptation. He gives you the power and strength to endure it. So say no to temptation. We can say no 
Not because you have the strength to do it or the power to do it. It's because God supplies the strength and the power to say no. The question is, do you trust that power? And if so, then say no. All temptation is really a promise. Temptation is when something is promised to you that will fulfill a desire you have, but it requires you to go beyond God's boundaries in order to attain it. So I have a desire for sex. In order to have that satisfied, temptation says you need to seek it over here, outside of God's boundaries, and then you will be satisfied. It's a promise of your ultimate satisfaction and you ultimately being fulfilled by going outside of God and outside of his word. So it makes sense that the Apostle Paul would conclude this talk of temptation by saying this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now the question is, wait a minute, I thought he was talking about temptation. Now all of a sudden he flipped it and now we're talking about idolatry? What happened? The reality is, all temptation is somehow related to idolatry. Tim Keller defines idolatry like this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I only had that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something but perhaps the best one is worship. Temptation is when you look at something and seeing it, you feel that it could satisfy the desires you have. If I just had that, then my life would be satisfied. Then I will be able to wake up tomorrow morning and then I will know I have value and significance. And so many of us say, if I just had that little black dress, if I just had that baseball hat, if I just had that promotion, if I just had that new car, if I just had that new house, if I just, if I just, if I just, then my life will feel complete. I'll be satisfied. And then what happens? You got the dress, you got the hat, you're sitting in your car and you're sitting in your house and you're looking around going, what's next? Because everything temptation promises, it can never satisfy. And we, for whatever reason, keep believing that it will. No, no, this time's different. No. All sin is destructive by nature. And therefore, the temptation to go beyond God and beyond God's boundaries is doomed to dissatisfy, not satisfy. So the Apostle John writes this in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And all the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, do not love the world. But you notice the desire is not evil. Bathsheba is not at fault here. Bathsheba is not at fault here. So then we move on and we see how destructive sin really is. Sin reproduces destruction. How is David going to respond to this sin? 
How is he going to respond to this exploitation of power and authority? Raping this woman, getting her pregnant. And we read in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked Joab, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. You know, just casual conversation. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other words, Uriah says, you know what? There's no way I'm going to abandon my men and break the soldier code by going to my house and eating, drinking, and being married and, and lying with my wife. I'm not going to do that, especially when my commander and fellow soldiers are out there in harm's way and they're suffering. I'm not going to go enjoy myself like that. I got a duty. If that's not an indictment against David, I don't know what is. Here's a man, Uriah, who is doing his duty, and there's David who is not. So that's the first attempt, is to try, to try to trick Uriah into going and having sex with his wife so that she may become pregnant. The second attempt is revealed in verses 12 and 13. Since that didn't work, David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in, the presence, in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So attempt number two is, I'm going to get this guy drunk. Then he's going to make bad decisions because that's what drunk people do. However, a drunken Uriah makes a better decision than a sober David. You see that? So second attempt to cover David's sin is a failure as well. So now we get to the third attempt that David makes to try to cover his sin. And what this does is reveals David's depravity. Pick it up in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Can you imagine that carrying your own death letter? In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Don't overlook verse 17. In the course of trying to cover up his sin, David now has blood on his hands because many of these men had to die to try to cover up David's sin. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king... Then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had said. 
The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. The archers shot. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David said to the messenger, look how callous David's heart has become. Well, this you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Things happen. Don't worry about it. A lot of people died because of me. Don't worry about it. What? No, no, no. People have lost their lives. Families are going to grieve now because you were lusting on a roof. Don't minimize that. Are you kidding me, David? Hidden sin is so corruptive that it causes you or compels you to try to cover it up by more sin. You see that? Sin number one, lust. Oh, I got to cover, cover that up. Well, no, I'm going to actually, I'm not covering it up. I'm going all in. She's pregnant. Uh-oh, I got to cover those things up. All right, I'm going to deceive and lie and manipulate. Oh, no, that didn't work. Now I got to cover that stuff up. Now I got to get this man drunk. Oh, no, that didn't work. Now I got to cover that up by doing this. Now I got to cover all those sins up by this new sin. Pretty soon you're sinning so much you don't even know which sin you already did and which one you want to do next. And one of the things I think about is, you know what? Why did David try to hide his sin so much? I think it's because this, he was more concerned about his reputation of being a holy man than he was about actually being a holy man. He wanted to preserve his reputation at all costs rather than to sacrifice the embarrassment of confessing your sin. Brothers and sisters, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe when you were a kid you did this. I didn't do that. Are you sure you didn't do that? No. Then your parents go, well, then why did I have this? I don't know how that got there. Now you're like two lies deep. Well, I saw you do that. Oh, no, I was upstairs. Now you're three lies deep because you were in the backyard. You see where I'm going with this? Sin is so destructive that it, it reproduces more of itself. And that's why I almost, with a smile on my face, tell people, you can't manage your sin. What are you talking about? Quit fooling yourself. The only thing sin does is create more of itself. Just like cancer kills you by producing more of itself. So then sin is exposed eventually by God's word through Nathan. I love this. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and says to him this parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, these words are self-incriminating for David. 
He's thinking to himself, if that's true, that this poor man who only has this one little thing is ripped from that thing, and this rich man who has all this stuff has no pity for the poor man and just takes and takes and takes, he deserves to die. God needs to give justice. (laughs) And then we get to chapter 12, verse 7, where Nathan says in reply, you are that man. In other words, you deserve to die. You were the rich man who took from the poor. You were the one who has no pity. You were the one who has committed this heinous crime of sin. What was going through David's mind in that moment? And then God goes on in verse, the rest of this verse, all the way through verse 9, to remind David of all that he has done. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In other words, David's ingratitude and greed degenerate into murder. You know, doing pastoral ministry for as long as I have, I've ministered with people who are in the throes of sin countless times. But in all those times, I have never, ever heard somebody confronted with their sin ever come to me and said, Phil, I knew about all the pain and all the suffering that I would cause and how it would would destroy people's lives, but I decided I was going to do it anyway. I've never heard that. What I hear is, I didn't mean for this to happen. I didn't think it would come to this. Of course you didn't. Nobody goes into sin thinking, how can I inflict maximum pain? They go into sin thinking, how can I find maximum joy? And then find themselves bankrupt with joy. So they go to the next sin and the next sin and the next sin. There are consequences for sin, chief of which is death. It's good for us to realize that our sin has consequences I think the very reason why David sought to cover up his sin was because he tried to minimize the consequences, but in trying to minimize the consequences of sin, he only made it worse. God promises justice. When you read verses 10 through 12, God says, because you have killed Uriah, your son will die. Because you have taken a wife which is not your own, your wives will be taken. And because you killed Uriah with the sword, the sword will never leave your house. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Do you think David, if he could have foreseen all that would happen, do you think he still would have done it? I want to say I don't think so. But I'm a human being and you're a human being. And we've read the stories of Adam and Eve, and we've read the stories of David and Bathsheba, and we've read the stories, countless stories of sin and destruction and consequences of sin. And yet, day by day, we wake up each morning, and what? We sin. 
And in the midst of sin's curse, there is hope, though. I don't want us to leave not realizing there's hope. Remember, the gospel is two-pronged. First, it inflicts pain, conviction. But secondly, the gospel brings healing. In the midst of sin's curse, there is hope. Look at this in verse 13. After David has been confronted by Nathan, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. I think this is so beautiful because it reminds us of the substitution. David, your son's going to die in your place. You'll go free, but he will die. That doesn't seem fair, does it? A man should die for his own sins. Yeah, but doesn't that make the gospel all that more powerful? You know, next week when we come together as a church to celebrate communion, we're going to remind ourselves of what Jesus did in the night in the upper room where he took bread, remember, and he gave thanks for it and he broke it. And then he says, this is my body which is given for you. In other words, this, you see this bread? You see it? You see this? This is for you. Take it. And then later he takes the cup and he pours the wine into the cup and he says, this, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see this cup? You see it? Take it. And where Adam and Eve first saw and took, the result and consequence was death. So now we as Christians, when we see the body and blood of Jesus, crucified on a cross, risen in victory, when we take the gospel, we see and we take the gospel, the result and consequence is life. It's the great reversal. And that's why communion is so Beautiful. It's when God says, Adam and Eve took what they saw. I'm undoing that. See this? Take it. It's yours. And have life. So what should we do about our sin, brother and sister? How did David respond to this? Yes, we see that he acknowledges I've sinned against the Lord, and we see Nathan's response. But how did all that work? How does, that, how does that work? Pop the hood. Let's take a gander. I want to see the mechanics of this. Psalm 51. When David has significant life experiences, he oftentimes writes a psalm about it. Psalm 51. In the opening of that psalm, the heading of it reads this. Have mercy on me, or excuse me, it says, the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is what David wrote. This is helping us get a glimpse of what's going through his mind and heart in the moments after this sin. And we read, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'm begging you, God, do this for me. What David does is he goes to God. But you only go to God if you know that going to God is going to do something. 
and what David knew about God that caused him to go to God is that in going to God with his sin, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, God will forgive me. God will love me. God will have mercy on me. God will wash me of my sin. I know that about God. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons why you and I in the throes of our sin, we do not immediately run to the presence of God and thrust ourselves upon the love and mercy and grace of God for the forgiveness of sins. Why we don't do that is because we don't know God to be those things. We don't think God is loving. We don't think God is merciful. We don't think God is gracious. And therefore, we don't go to him. And so I want you to know today, when you leave here, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is the kind of God who forgives. Read this in in, in the Apostle John's words in verse 8, excuse me, verse 7 of 1 John 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to know that that is who God is. He forgives. He loves. He has mercy. He has grace. And how we go about coming to God is in humility, confessing and repenting of our sins. We go on, and here's how David wrote it. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, David is saying, Lord, I know for a fact that your judgment of me is true. I am a sinner. I have failed you miserably. You delight in truth when I'm honest with myself. You delight in me being honest with you. So I'm I'm bearing my all, God. I am fallen and broken. Brothers and sisters, God is not proud of you and happy with you when you try to hide your sin and pretend that you are better than you are. God who knows everything, he knows your heart better than you know your own heart and so he sees you as you are and so there's freedom in knowing that God already knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. So God, so take that confidence that God sees and loves and has mercy and grace, take that confidence and go to God. In repentance, which means turning from yourself and turning towards God. Stop trying to do it on your own. Turn to him. In our culture, we don't, we don't talk much about confession and repentance because it's demeaning and beneath us. I remember when President Trump one time said he didn't need to confess his sins because he didn't have anything that he needs to confess of. And that's so popular in modern culture. I don't need to confess. What do I have to repent of? But here is a beautiful thing that the Apostle Peter says in verse 19 of Acts chapter 3. He says, repent therefore. 
and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. In verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Repentance and confession is not demeaning. Repentance and confession is the very means to refreshment. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, many of you have come this morning and you are tired of your sin and you are just weighed down and you feel just the burden of sin. And it seems like every day you wake up and it's the same thing. And I I just fail and I keep doing it over and over. And what is wrong with me? And then you read a text like this. If you will repent, if you will confess your sins and turn to God, the presence of the Lord will overshadow you and you will be rejuvenated. Refreshing will come. That's why Jesus says, all come to, come to me. All who are heavy laden, all who are burdened, all who are tired and weary, come to me and you will find Be burdened no more, brothers and sisters. Confess. Repent. And God is the one who saves us through Jesus. Our repentance doesn't save us. God saves us. Look how David writes this in Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In other words, God, if you do and you act like you say you're going to do and act, it's going to happen. God, if you will forgive, if, if you promised to forgive me if I confess and repent, I'm confessing and I'm repenting, you will forgive me. You will have mercy. You will have grace. If you wash me, God, I know that I will be whiter than snow. So let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Brothers and sisters, when you confess and repent, those are the words God has given you that you should say back to him. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. Let your presence overwhelm me and refresh me. Take not the Holy Spirit from me, but grant me the Holy Spirit. Do you see what's happening here? God has indeed forgiven our sins. God has indeed blotted out our sins. God has indeed washed away our sins by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to have his blood shed on the cross in our place so that the penalty and the consequences for sin would be upon him and not upon us. Death to Jesus, life to us. And so we read in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How has God forgiven us all our trespasses? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because of our sin, we had a debt that could not be paid. And God nailed that debt to the cross. 
but it was not a piece of paper that was nailed to the cross. It was none other, none other than his one and only son, Jesus, who is the sufficient payment for our sins, in whom we find forgiveness. So I implore you, brothers and sisters, that you be reconciled to God. Confess your sins today so that you can be forgiven. Jesus has done all that is required to be forgiven so that you may receive the refreshment and the life that you all desire. So trust that Jesus is enough. Trust that Jesus has paid your debt. Trust that your sins are washed away. Trust that if you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Trust that God has given you life. I want to close our service with just a, a moment of silence because I think in our culture we don't do this enough. Where we just don't sit, as we talked about last week, in worship of God in stunned silence. And we get to hear ourselves think. And then I'm going to pray for us and then we'll close our service with some singing. Lord, we have read in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if we confess our sins with our mouth, if we believe in our heart that Jesus is crucified and risen, that we will be saved. Our sins will be blotted out. So God, I pray as we close this service with this song that you would help us to use this song as a prayer of confession, to trust and believe that what you said and what you did is true, and in so doing, you would save us. So God be worshiped in this time, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.